I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist Fund Managers. Hello podcast fans and welcome to Total Football. The 2017-18 FA Cup fourth round is in the books and has provided us with memories to last a lifetime. Heroics from Newport County and Coventry City, shocks for Liverpool and West Ham United and the continuing development of everyone's favourite refereeing technology. Yes, it's our old friend, VAR. We'll get an update on the latest transfer news and innuendo from our very own Jeremy Wilson as the window closes Limber up to do their biannual job, plus an investigation about how to get a football club rebrand right after Leeds United got theirs very, very wrong. But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by the newest addition to the Telegraph Sport football reporting family, making his total football debut. It's Sam Dean. Sam, how are you? I'm very well, Tom. Thanks for having me. You you have said you're excited to be here. I'm not sure you sound excited to be oh, here. Oh, no, I don't worry. I'm very excited. I'm still uh, recovering from yesterday's experience at Newport. Um, so give me a moment to re- get my breath back from that, and then I'll be uh, very much screaming down the A trip down to the Newport line. does take the breath away. We will, of course, start with the magical FA Cup. And what's the opposite of magic? It is, of course, bloodless technology, which eliminates all human error. To Anfield then, and a VAR-assisted 3-2 win for West Brom. Sam, all the key decisions were worked out the right way in the end, but should we be concerned about how long it took for the officials to reach those decisions? Yeah, I think there are definitely a lot of questions to be asked about the process here, and I'm sure that a lot of fans inside Anfield uh, would have been very confused, as well as the journalists. We always think of the journalists too, um, but a lot of the fans have been extremely confused about what was going on yesterday. I mean, I think there were seven minutes of breaks in total in that first half, which just seems so excessive and so slow. And yes, they got decisions right, but it's sort of the question asked is, at what cost, if you know what I mean? It's a, it's a tricky one because no one wants to see things go wrong and nobody wants to see teams lose their place in the FA Cup or get relegated or whatever because of a dodgy refereeing decision. But at the same time, the magic of scoring a goal is scoring a goal and celebrating in that moment and feeling that joy. And if you have to wait two minutes for a referee to sort of validate it, it does sort of take the sting out of the the game and the enjoyment of that goal. Not just the big moments either, is it? Uh, the game started with a lot of intensity, you know, Saturday night, everyone's had a drink, I dare say. Atmosphere, good. Nothing sucks that atmosphere away, like enormous breaks in play where nothing is going on. Klopp was saying after the game that it's natural that it's going to take a while to begin with. Do you think it will improve? Do you think they're going to find a way to make it all a little bit more streamlined? Yeah, I think absolutely. We have to bear in mind this is very early days for this technology and this process. Um, what I have been thinking about is, are they trialling it in big games that are too big right now? Liverpool, West Brom on TV on Saturday night, 50,000 fans at Anfield. It's a really big game. And 
Craig Pawson, the referee, clearly isn't experienced with it. None of the referees are. It's new for them too. We probably should bear that in mind. But I know they've been trialling it in the MLS and lower leagues and that sort of thing. But have we not gone sort of too far too soon with this? And that because I mean, I think yesterday's game, I think it's probably fair to say, was ruined or severely sort of impacted by this technology. And not if you're a West Brom fan, really. I'm sure they're not too upset today. No, no. But even even Alan Pardew, who who won, and that was a massive massive result for West Brom, considering the difficulties they've had this season, particularly under him. Even he was saying this is this is can't be right. This can't be how it should work. Um, I don't know if you saw one thing he did complain about was um, a hamstring problem for uh, a very, of players. Very interesting, and it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If your players, if there's ever a big injury for another player, you see the rest of the players kind of keeping warm. Maybe that hasn't been communicated yet to the players that it's important <laughs> to keep doing your shuttle runs while the referee goes and look, watches his monitor. The fact that Pardew was unhappy with it said a lot, I think, for the the state of this. And it's just it was the speed for me. Um, Yesterday was the problem. Um, previously, I've had an issue with it. I was at Brighton versus Crystal Palace uh, earlier this month when it was first used in England uh, competitive debut. And it was an 87th minute winner scored by Glenn Murray, sort of bundled in. And um, nobody in the press box or in the crowd had any idea whether VAR had been used. We couldn't tell if the referee put his finger to his ear or not. And we all left four minutes later when the game finished, more confused than we were before which can't be right for the paying spectator. Um, these are the guys who constantly say they're being hard done by. Uh, you know, the fans, the clubs are looking elsewhere for, for money. They're not taking them seriously. And this feels like this sort of the next step forward in broadcast taking over from the actual yeah, paying spectators. Back on the pitch, Sam, after their fantastic win over Manchester City, Liverpool have now lost to Swansea and West Brom in seven days. What's holding them back at the moment? It's the sort of like stroppy teenagers, aren't they? They have these days where they're in great form, they wake up in a good mood and the next day they're sort of toys out the pram, nothing's really coming off and they sort of gradually lose that determination, that drive and that sort of unity. And it happened against Swansea where I don't think anyone watching that, apart from the late chance at the end, thought they were going to get back into that game at all. Um, I think a lot of people even looked at that game and thought, oh, they're guaranteed a loss here, which is bizarre considering they've just beaten Man City, the first team to beat them this season. And then against West Brom at home, it's the sort of game that last year they'd have struggled with against a team that's set deep and defended, you know, back to the wall sort of defending. Whereas this year they've been a bit better at that. Um, but now they've sort of gone back to where they were. Maybe that Swansea defeat has knocked some of the confidence out of them, which is, again, is so odd considering they've just blown Man City apart. But it's the same old issues with they can beat teams who give them space, but they can't beat teams who actually come and defend and say, go on, break us down. Out in the fourth round for the third year in a row under Klopp now. Mm. Is there anything in common with those uh, with those performances for Liverpool in the Cup? Well, I'm not sure because last year was the Wolves' defeat at home and they played, a club pretty much changed the entire side. It was when they had their January from hell when uh, Mane was off in the African Cup of Nations and he just played all these kids for about four weeks straight and they lost for about four weeks straight. <laughs> and uh, this time it was quite a strong team yesterday. It wasn't like he's playing the kids around, uh, playing the kids again. So that I don't think that's connected there. It's, it's more a, it's an inconsistency problem for sure. And the big worry I think for Liverpool fans yesterday is that Van Dijk didn't seem to bring any sort of added solidity at all. Um, and for when you pay £75 million for a defender, and I know he's very new to the squad and he's going to take some time to bed in, but that was worrying, I think. And West Brom could have scored four or five before half-time. Seeing him deployed as an auxiliary striker must have been quite concerning as well for Liverpool supporters. You were at Rodney Parade on Saturday, Sam. What a treat for you. Newport now on their way to Wembley in an FA Cup replay against Spurs. How much did this match mean for the City and the coach and the, ma- and the players of Newport? 
I think it's genuinely hard to overstate how much it meant. I mean, the crowd was fantastic. What was it like being in the city before the game? You could feel the occasion uh, and just get in there. Even an hour before kickoff, the the chant was starting then, a lot earlier than most Premier League games. Uh, And the fans were really streaming in from about an hour and a half before kickoff, which is highly unusual, uh, particularly for Spurs games where Premier League fans often, as I'm sure you know, rock up five minutes to go um, and get going from there and then leave straight away whereas the Newport fans were making a full day of it and it was great uh, I was fortunate because uh, Rodney Parade's not a enormous stadium as you're no doubt aware um, the media facilities are quite limited so about five or six of us were literally put in the stands with the crowd just we've got no seats for you so just sit here so I was very much a Newport fan for 90 minutes or trying to be one so there's no chance of getting my laptop out or doing anything like that which is quite nice it was quite refreshing and uh, yes half time chips and all that sort of uh, full fan experience which is lovely do you think Spurs were taking the game fully seriously? Well, the team that Pochettino picked suggested they were. It was a strong team, um, 3-5-2 formation, which is the sort of one he does against big sides, really. He wasn't sort of just picking the kids and saying, go get four or five. I think he knew it would be a battle, and the pitch didn't help. The pitch was really horrible. It's one of those uh, those pitches where you can you see the heel go in first and the toe of the foot follows it because it's so squelchy underneath. And uh, that was clearly an issue as well. As Spurs tried to pass the ball around the first half and just got nowhere but I was thinking about it and so few of those Spurs players have ever played in that sort of level at that sort of pitch I think Kieran Trippier would have done when he was on loan at Barnsley or when he played for Burnley before and Harry Kane certainly has during his many loan spells before he got good but the rest of them have never sort of experienced that people like Carl Walker-Peters has come through the Tottenham Academy playing on pristine pitches his whole young life and the one who really stood out was uh, one Foyth at the centre-back who obviously is the young 20-year-old Argentinian, he's not played many games and he just got absolutely bullied by these horrible Newport strikers who just wanted to just hit him and just stand on his toes and just sort of throw elbows in the way and he looked, uh, for about 45 minutes, first half, he looked absolutely terrified and I don't blame him. <laughs> Newport have had a few financial problems uh, in recent history. A replay at Wembley in some ways the best thing for them. Did you get that impression afterwards from their manager, Michael Flynn? Well, I asked him directly, would would you have preferred to have drawn this or won it, knowing that you're getting a Wembley replay from it? And uh, he insisted very strongly that he wanted to win and there was no part of him that wanted to draw a game ever. But he did accept that this is a major, major deal for the club. And I asked what the money's going to be spent on, that they're going to get in. And I think he mentioned there'll be about 1.7 million from this FA Cup run. Uh, and the annual turnover for Newport is 2.2 million. So this is a huge, huge chunk for the for the year. And they're going to buy a new training ground. He wants to get a new pitch and they've got to rebuild the club building, which burned down in a fire. So this is genuinely going to transform their club. And that's fantastic news for everyone in the area, I think. Will Grigg reignited at Wigan Athletic, who saw off West Ham 2-0 in one of the day's best giant killings uh, in this round of the FA Cup. A rare sighting of Reese Oxford in the West Ham lineup. What, what's happened to him, Sam? Four years on from that uh, incredible debut against Arsenal, which had everyone raving about how he was going to be sort of reincarnation of Bobby Moore mixed with mm. Frank Lampard Sr. Uh, didn't, then didn't play much at Borussia Mönchengladbach on loan. Why hasn't he kicked on? I do think injuries have held him back a bit, but it, it seems like when he first came in, as you mentioned, that Arsenal game, he was so commanding and he played centre-back and he looked so elegant. He looked like a young Rio Ferdinand. And the thing that really impressed me at that game is that he went on match of the day afterwards and he spoke and he, and he was so articulate and he was so open and honest and he was 16 years old and it was so good to see. But since then... A, I'm not sure he's been given that much of a chance to play at West Ham and B, injuries have hit him. Um, I've just seen that I think he's going back to Borussia Mönchengladbach on loan again. He said that he was 
pretty unhappy to be brought back, I think, in the first place this January. Um, but West Ham are so short of players that I'd be surprised if Moyes is happy to let him go. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what happens to him, but it, it certainly hasn't kicked on the way we hoped it would have when we first all saw, as England fans anyway, I think everyone saw that immediately and thought, this guy's got all it takes being an international, but it's not quite happened for him. Masuaku facing a lengthy ban after breaking one of the highest footballing player commandments. Don't spit at other players. What's he playing at, Sam? What, what could possibly be going through someone's head to do that on a football pitch or anywhere, really? No, I, I, I can't explain it. But what I would say is that this is often given as the as the, the most disgusting thing you can do on a football pitch, the very worst thing that could happen to you. Um, and it is disgusting. It is vile and... God, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But I'd rather be spat and have my leg broken or be bitten. But it seems that spitting has got this image of being the worst thing. And I think part of it, probably unfairly, is that it's, it's often seen as a, a foreign thing that right. people have brought to the Premier League and studied our game with this horrible spitting. Um, I'm not sure how fair that is. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's no excuse for what he did. And it's such a shame for him because he's played so well recently. He's sort of becoming a bit of a cult hero at West Ham. He's sort of turned into this wizard on the wing, dribbling past people against Man City. He was sort of going on some great runs. He did it against Spurs as well. Sort of going viral with some of the tricks he was doing and that kind of thing. And now he's just wiped that all away. And he's left his team in a really difficult position going into the next few games when they're already struggling. Quite. 3-0 for Chelsea against Newcastle on Sunday. Uh, Mitchie Batswai scoring twice for them. You're a fan of Mitchie, right? I think he's quite good, yeah. I, whenever I've seen him play... Um, which admittedly is against smaller teams largely. That seems to be when he plays in the cup games. He scores quite a lot of goals. He's got 10 goals this season now, which is more than Lacazette's got at Arsenal, for example. And that's quite impressive. I, mean, I was at Brighton last weekend when Chelsea just tore them to pieces and it was 4-0. And Bashwai played quite well. He was linking up nicely with Hazard and Willian. But there are a few moments he tried a little back heel here or a little flick there. And it didn't come off. And you could just see Conte on the sidelines going mad. And at one point, he sort of rocked back on his heels and let out this scream of anguish into the air. And he was so angry at Batshuayi, and he clearly doesn't rate him. We know that for sure, because he's trying to get in Peter Crouch anyone. or Ed Injeko or anyone above six foot four. Nikola Zigic, bring him back. Anyone will do. So it's, it's a sign of doesn't, how much he doesn't particularly want Batshuayi there. But I mean, I, he said after the Brighton game, I need my striker to be a reference point. And if Bashwai wants to go, then he can, pretty much. Not in those exact words, but he said if he wants to go on loan for more games, then he can. So there's no part of him, I think, that wants to keep Bashwai. But if he's scoring two goals today, again, against the Newcastle side, Premier League opposition, he thinks up well with Hazard. I think he gets on with Hazard. They're, you know, they're both Belgian, they're good friends. I don't see why his Chelsea career should necessarily be over personally, but... Conte is a man of many mysteries and we can't second guess him, I don't think. <laughs> Perhaps there'll have a new manager to work with before too long. Uh, in the late game on Sunday, it was Cardiff City nil, Manchester City 2. Kevin De Bruyne scoring a lovely goal underneath the jumpy Cardiff wall. Could Cardiff have done anything about Man City today? They took the game to them a little bit initially, but was this one of those where there was just not going to be anything in Cardiff's locker that could have really combated the slightly better team with the City Suffix. Well, there were there were a lot of dis- a lot of discussion about a month ago when Newcastle played Man City and they basically played ten defenders and just said we are going to defend our penalty box and you're going to play and see what you can do. And people criticised that and said this is killing the league. Man City are too good. Newcastle aren't trying, but it almost worked. City only won one nil that game and Newcastle nearly got a penalty at the end. Cardiff today 
took the opposite approach and thought, we're going to go for you a bit. And they attacked. But the gap between the defence and the strikers in the midfield was just so big. And people like De Bruyne, give him even two yards of space and he's going to tear you apart. And he had 10 yards to work in. And Gundogan as well and Bernardo Silva, they were just running free, really, which is a, a very dangerous game to play against City. So I do think Cardiff may have approached that a bit too aggressively um, from what I could see. But at the same time, I'm not sure if you're Cardiff, there's any point turning up and trying to defend because you know they're going to break down at one point. So you may as well go for it, mightn't you? Mm, quite. It was it was an incredibly tedious uh, second half. But speaking of games that ended very predictably with wins for Manchester clubs, Yeovil nil, Man United 4 on Friday night and a debut for Alexis Sanchez. There's been a lot of talk about how much he's raised standards already at uh, Carrington for United. How much difference do you think it makes for players when someone comes in who clearly takes everything so seriously as Sanchez does? Uh, well, it must have an impact. I mean, it was quite clear that he was pretty unpopular at Arsenal by the end, but uh, I don't think that was necessarily the case for the first few years of his time there. So he's clearly the kind of guy who's desperate to win and he'll drive you up in that sense. My worry is that that United group is clearly quite tight-knit, whether that's Jesse Lingard, Paul Pogba, they're clearly good friends, Rashford's sort of part of that group. We've got these young guys who seem to get on quite well. My worry would be that Sanchez comes in, knocks one of them out of the team, particularly Lingard, and that might have some sort of disruptive effect. I don't think Mourinho would allow that to happen necessarily, but we've seen Mourinho teams before get torn apart from inside the dressing room. And I wouldn't put it beyond Sanchez, particularly the wages he's earning. I mean, footballers earn a lot and it's hard to say, yes, you earn 200 grand, so you can't be angry at the guy earning 600 grand. But they are still humans and any colleague you've got, if he's earning more than you, you might think, why is he earning more than me? What have I not done that he has? Um, I mean, this is all very early days and I expect... This is not going to happen at all. But that would be my one concern that the sort of... I mean, that was the reason City didn't buy him, wasn't it? City said he would break our wage structure and it would unbalance the team. So Pep thought that risk was there. Um, whether that is the case or not for Man City... For Man United, sorry, I uh, will wait and see. But uh, he certainly did look good against Yeovil, um, even though he was booed. What was, he, what was he getting booed for, do you think? Was he just being booed for being rich? Is, that, think, is, that, what, is that what it is? I, I think it might be, yeah. I mean... Uh... He's not got some sort of personal beef with Yeovil, has he? I can't think of what, he's, what Alexis Sanchez could possibly have done to upset Yeovil in the past, but he, uh, clearly the, he, there's something wrong with him. He doesn't like cider, that's my guess. <laughs> of course, Jose Mourinho has got until 2020 to solve any potential problems with uh, Alexis Sanchez after signing a new contract. What chance do you think he's got of seeing that deal out? Well, it's been when he signs a new contract before, when it's all things have started going wrong again. Um, yes, it's interesting on this. I suspect he won't last till 2020 he just doesn't seem happy to me um, and I know he's been commented on a lot and perhaps overplayed but he's living in a hotel it's not a sign of commitment um, and that's to me suggests he doesn't much fancy the life around there and I know his family lives in London still um, and that's a question I think that again he's asking but 2020 feels like a long time away now two years in football that is a very long time I mean two years ago he was just leaving Chelsea wasn't he so a lot could change. Uh, I'd be very surprised if he stays until then. But if they keep signing all these great players and they keep ploughing money into the squad, then they're going to win things. And if they're going to win things, then why would he leave? And in finish, that does look like a very, very nice hotel. A replay for Notts County, who will play Swansea again at their place. Uh, Notts County, of course, managed by Kevin Nolan. Did you think he was management material? Uh, I'm still yet to see the chicken dance on the touchline, so um, I'm waiting for that. When I see that, I'll know it's it's truly Kevin. Um, no, he's doing a good job down there, isn't he? Notts County are playing really well. What I really loved was their their strike force of 
Sholamiobi and John Stead, the sort of Premier League duo with 70 years between them, coming back and sort of taking on the big boys once more for sort of getting the old band back together kind of thing, which I thought was great. The old and very unsuccessful band. But Shola looked great. Did you see him? He's 36 years old. He's found his level. He looks about 25 still. He looks fantastic for him. Um, he's found, found, found his level might be harsh. He was a good player in his yeah, day, Shola it, It's far too harsh on Shola <laughs> I immediately retract that statement. I'm a big fan of Shola Ramiobi. But no, he looked, he looked good. Uh, I thought, uh, I was surprised how sort of fresh-faced he looked at 36 and journeyman career all, and all that behind him. But uh, no, he looked, looked good. Leicester City safely into the fifth round draw with a 5-1 victory over Peterborough. Peterborough looked like they might be able to get back into it a 3-1 down, but the game was taken out of their reach towards the end. What did you make of this one, Sam? Well, when I saw the team sheet, I think like a lot of Leicester fans, I was quite worried for Leicester. Ten changes from Claude Puel, whispering Claude. Uh, but within about half an hour, they were 3-0 up, weren't they? Uh, Ian Acho, who has been very disappointing this season, uh, Played very well. Although I would say second goal, and this I know it was a debate I think on on TV. Uh, his second goal, we should have passed it. He curled off the edge of the box, but he should have passed the ball. I know he scored, but you still got to pass it in those situations. That that irrationally made me angry. Um, but that was good. And the other guy who was very impressive was uh, the new man Fuseni Diabate, who uh, scored a good goal in his debut. A nice little toe poke. I always enjoy a toe poke finish. Keeper's got no chance to see that. And then a second one later on. And he set up the fifth. I mean, as John Percy wrote in his uh, in his match report, he was signed for one point seven five million. I don't think anyone really clocked it or noticed it. And already, he looks like he's a potentially really good signing. Yeah, no one's been signed for one point seven five million since about nineteen ninety six. Finally, we will have at least one League Two side in the fifth round hat. Coventry City saw off MK Dons one 0 Are we going to put all of our magic tokens for this season's competition into Coventry now? Yeah, I think so. They've they've not quite got the credit they deserve for this run. I mean, this is a club who's been through so much pain for the last 10 years under the hedge fund owners. And this looks like, at the moment, a real positive for them. A bit like with Newport, who've been through their own difficulties. But this is a whole different scale, really. And they obviously beat Stoke, but that was overshadowed by the subsequent sacking of Mark Hughes. Uh, the issue is MK Dons is not a very glamorous tie. So hopefully for them, they can get somewhere a bit more exciting. A trip to Old Trafford, maybe, or something like that. That'll be... a uh, maybe shine more of a spotlight on their on their good form. Fingers crossed, yes. It, it wasn't broadly an absolute classic FA Cup weekend, was it? I'm interested, Sam, in a younger person's perspective on the Cup, and you are a younger person, especially compared <laughs> to me. Does the Cup feel diminished to you now? Was it ever magical to you as you were growing up? Yeah, I think it always was. I think I always look forward to the Cup weekends more than most. What, what's the first final you can remember? The Michael Owen final. Liverpool Arsenal. It's going to make some of our listeners very, very upset. I'm, That's I'm, the first one you remember. <laughs> I'm very sorry about that. Um, yeah, the Michael Owen when he scored two two late goals. Um, the issue I've had with the FA Cup over the recent years is the selection for matches that are televised. When they put Premier League team against Premier League team, it's not very exciting. And I kind of understand it because people like the BBC don't, or when ITV when they used to have it, they don't get to show Premier League games live. So this is a chance for them to do that and sort of jump on the on the bandwagon but it's never quite the same feeling particularly when managers change the team around a lot uh, and for me that is always a shame it's the ones it's games like Newport versus Tottenham the ones where clubs go away to a small ground and have to dig in in the mud where you want to see some you want to see some fun and that and that magic I don't think will ever will ever go um, the only question is how much better the Premier League teams are getting than everyone else I mean 10 years ago Man United could have beaten Yeovil 4-0, but it might not have been quite so easy. They're just That gap's getting bigger and bigger by the year. Um, so maybe we'll see less and less of those 
Newport-esque shots. The answer to this is just a lot more mud. We are mere days away now from the ceremonial closing of the transfer window and I'm delighted to say Jeremy Wilson is on hand to fill us in. Jeremy, if you were, God forbid, transferred to a sports news TV channel, which training ground car park would you be spending your Wednesday on <laughs> in to guarantee some actual news to report? Which club do you expect is going to be busiest? I think Chelsea might be quite busy because they're still trying to get a striker. I think I think there'd be quite a few clubs who, who are busy. I suppose the, 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 the headline ones are probably Chelsea and Arsenal. Um, Tottenham usually try and do something. Probably Arsenal really is the most eye-catching one with the Aubameyang. I mean, he's a, a sort of stellar player, been one of the best strikers in Europe for a few years. So that's probably um, Chelsea are obviously looking for more of a backup to Morata, so not not going for the same level of player. So that that is probably the most interesting one, even though I cover Arsenal the most. I don't think I'm being sort of um, biased in saying that. How likely does Aubameyang feel at the moment? I think it will happen, but it's not... I mean, in this window, yeah, I do, I do, but I, you know, it's probably sixty forty or something like that. I think there's a lot on it for Arsenal. They they changed a lot behind the scenes in the last year, and Gavidas and Sven Mislintat and Husfami, the the new contract guy, they're they're kind of the new team behind the scenes that have that have. There's been a sort of quiet revolution behind the scenes at Arsenal in terms of the recruitment and a lot of the sort of sports science and preparation and, and Wenger you know Wenger's obviously not it's not really Wenger who's driving this although he seems to be going along with it and doesn't seem to be too perturbed apart you know, there's a few kind of barbed comments here and there but nothing really that bad he seems to be working with with the system at the moment so those three have been leading this sort of over Miang they they were they they got themselves photographed several times in Dortmund last week so I mean obviously they'll have their fee that they think is realistic and Arsenal's finances are not as Everyone sort of always assumes they've got loads and loads of money. I, I think it's they have to be fairly careful. Um, they're, they're not as not as sort of wealthy as everybody thinks. I don't think they've got got the means of they're quite a long way behind the, the two Manchester clubs for different reasons. So they won't go beyond the fee that they can afford. But I think that they really do want to get it done. Just it, partly, I think there will be a little bit of how it looks because having lost such a big player, having put so much into this deal and as I say all being out there all worked on it this being the new team that are supposed to improve Arsenal behind this, the scenes I think they'd lose quite a lot of um, sort of face with the supporters if they don't if they don't get get it done Jeremy you touched on it there a minute ago but uh, how, how damaging is it that this deal has gone so public that they have been pictured in Dortmund that Dortmund have released this statement directly referring to Arsenal and their bids it's all very different to, for example, the Van Dyke deal, which, for all we knew, just happened overnight because it was kept under wraps. Does that change the the pressure on Arsenal to make it happen? Does it change, you think, the way clubs might see Arsenal in the future? I think it changes it in terms of. I think the, as I said, the. I think the other factor is that Ivan Gazidis has got his new team working on this deal, and it's almost feels a bit like their transfer, a bit more than Wenger's at the moment. I mean. Bingo, I think wants to get the deal done. So I think there's that factor as well. So I think there is a bit of pride at stake. The one time I, I sort of think that they've not done the rash, that they, they, they sort of let let the outside pressure 
sort of override what you would think would be the rational decision was over Sanchez in the summer when they should have obviously sold him for 60 million on, on deadline day, even if they couldn't get a replacement. It was just daft to sort of wait as they did and lose, effectively lose 30 million just, just for a few months of Sanchez kind of playing okay. But usually, I think with Arsenal, they won't pay that much regard to how they look. They'll do what they think is is right. They'll have a, an amount of money that they think is right for Aubameyang, and it will have to have to meet that. That's certainly how they've always always run things, and they've always walked away from deals if they don't if they think they've got sort of unrealistic. What have you made of Chelsea's scattershot approach, Jeremy? Can you tell us a bit about why a club would be linked with a succession of players as has happened in the past few weeks? What, what's driving those stories? Um, probably a combination of things, really. Where you know maybe some of the stories are coming from different places because there's obviously two power centres at Chelsea. There's the Abramovich's team of people who have looked after transfers basically in the last few years, and then you've got a manager as well, a head coach. And unlike at Arsenal, but perhaps Arsenal are moving more towards this type of structure. You the the, the decisions are gen- the final decisions are certainly are made are made by this sort of committee, this transfer committee. I think the way it's unraveled is is in part to do with the fact that it looks fit from every every sort of inference that you can draw from Antonio Conte's press conferences is that he he feels separated from the the transfer process. If a agent or a journalist knows that Conte likes one particular striker, then that might be enough to to justify writing that Chelsea are interested in that striker it is enough to justify that. And then if, and then on the other side, if you've got the people who the, the sort of scouting department and the trans recruitment committee are looking at as well, that sort of generates um, maybe some different targets. So I think that's, I think that's why there's been so many names. Plus, plus the fact that the Carroll situation fell down, which uh, looked like that could have happened. Finally, Jeremy, what about Johnny Evans? Where do you think he's going to be at 11pm on Wednesday? <laughs> I've got a feeling he might just be where he is at the moment, to be honest. Because Weeping I think in Ars- the West Midlands. Yeah, because I think Manchester City obviously moved on. And I think that Arsenal, I think their priority is Aubameyang. I think if, if that doesn't happen, then there's a much stronger t- chance of Evans happening. I think if Giroud goes then there's a possibility of both happening. West Brom wanting sort of around 20 million for him. He's got 18 months left on his contract. He's not going to sign a new contract. For that. That's the clear indication. So clubs will be looking at it. And unless their need is urgent, they'll know that they can get him much, probably half the price, even less than half the price um, in the summer. That sort of makes me suspect more and more that he might just end up not getting a move now because he might just be priced out of it, basically, given his contract situation. Johnny Evans and priced out four words you did not expect to be hearing so close to one another in 2018. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Thank you. No problem. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Leeds United unveiled an unusual new club emblem this week which featured a disembodied torso beating his heart with his fist in a pose eerily reminiscent of the cover of Pro Evolution Soccer 2. Leeds have since said they will reconsider the design, but one club which had no such problems are my own, Queen's Park Rangers, who unveiled a new emblem in 2016, which more or less everyone agreed was an enormous improvement. Ian Taylor, QPR's Head of Media and Communications, joins us now. Ian, 
You were very involved in QPR's makeover. As the Leeds example has shown, there's a lot which can go wrong with these things. How do you avoid that happening? Hey, Tom. Um, yeah, I think consultation um, is key to any major decision at, at the football club. Obviously, yeah, I think the fan opinion um, is vital. And when it comes to something like the Crest that supporters care so passionately about, I think consultation is, is, is of paramount importance. What are some of the challenges which fans might not realise about coming up with a new club crest? I think there's always going to be challenges, aren't there, when it, when it comes to um, a new club crest because it, it comes down to opinion, really, what one fan might like, other fans might not like. We were lucky in that we, the crest that was eventually voted for by supporters, we had four, four crests that um, we eventually put up for a supporter vote. They were all quite similar to an old crest which was a popular crest. So that helps. There are always going to be challenges because every supporter has a voice. I think that's what makes football again. It is. Hi, Ian. It's uh, Sam Dean here. Um, just wanted to ask, what are the what were the reasons for the QPR rebrand? What, why did you think that was a necessary move? As Tom will know, uh, being a QPR fan, we had uh, we had some issues with the previous crest. Uh, the previous owners, Mr. Eccleston, Mr. Briatore. They designed a new crest uh, and that wasn't QPR. It was very much in fitting at the time with what they were trying to do with the club in terms of, <laughs> and I hate the phrase, but a boutique club and the crest they came up with was very boutique. So I think when the new owners came in, they, they quickly realised, Mr. Fernandez, Mr. Gangling, and they quickly realised that um, that crest wasn't what QPR was about and what they were looking to do with QPR in terms of the brand. So, it, there was a need, there was a desire to change it and, and like I said, we actually went back almost like to like to, to a previous crest um, that, you know, the shapes and the, the symbols were all important, the, the hoops, the circular shape, uh, the initials, QPR, we're quite lucky that that fits well in a crest um, and then obviously the year of formation as well and I think in today's world, um, you need to keep it as simple um, as you possibly can because it needs to get across many assets and we went with what, what we described at the time as being a single retro design and it worked out really well so we were really pleased. How important was it to sort of appeal to a, a global audience because that's always the, the stick I think a lot of clubs are beaten with of, of sort of prioritising fans out in Asia rather than the local paying supporters. I think from our point of view um, when, when the new owners came in there was a real drive to see what we could do and make some inroads in terms of the global game but more important for us as a club was that um, our domestic fan base embraced it. We had over 17,000 responses in total to uh, two periods of consultation with over 10,000 unique individuals having their say. And I think um, that, that was probably more important than anything, really. How difficult are football fans to please, Ian? It feels like some will always find something to, to beat the club with, a stick to beat the club with. Yeah, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because, like I say, everybody's got different views. And I think I said earlier in this interview than that. That's what makes the game what it is. Um, you know, like, certainly during during the period where we were doing the rebranding exercise, there was there was people at the club that had different views as well. You're never going to please everybody, but like I say, thankfully, I think with our, our rebrand that we did in, in May 2016, we pretty much got it uh, spot on, which was which was fantastic. Has social media made reactions more extreme to these sorts of choices? Yeah, I think so. I think that goes without saying, doesn't it? Whether that's you know, uh, a result on a Saturday afternoon um, or as Leeds have suffered, um, have seen and suffered to their, to their fate in, in the last week or so. It, you know, 
anybody can say whatever they want, can't they? they you know, we use you hear the term keyboard warriors used all the time, don't you? Like I say, fans are entitled to their view, but social media has certainly enhanced. Well, reaction time is obviously a lot quicker, isn't it? Now, I think within an hour, wasn't it? Seventy thousand, or within a couple of hours, seventy thousand Leeds fans, or, or I think I saw a stat like that, signed a petition saying they wanted change, and it looks like the Leeds hierarchy have now potentially listened to that. But yeah, yeah, without any without any shadow of doubt, I think if you'd have done a rebrand twenty, thirty years ago, um, you might have had a few people writing into the club, but those days are gone. Do you have any sympathy when you see a club getting monstered like Leeds were in the week working in your job? Yeah, I do. I do, actually. Um, I'm not saying it was the design that any Leeds United fan would have wanted, far from it. I think you've seen that with the reaction it got. But from the outside looking in, um, it appears that it's an owner that's made that decision. I know they, they said that they consulted with 10,000 fans. I'm not, I'm not sure to what level, and I'd be surprised if it was to the level that, that we did at QPR, but... Tom, you'll know that um, if you, any QPR fan or football fan in general just watch your four-year plan, there are, there are sometimes um, instances where owners just make decisions because they feel those decisions are right. And I'm sure they're biased against it because it, 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 for me it isn't really in fitting with Leeds United as a brand. But ultimately, the, uh, the people at the top can make those decisions. They own the football club. It's their money. So, yeah, I do. I do. Um, to, to answer your question, I, I do feel a bit sorry for them. Good stuff, Ian. Uh, please don't go changing the QPR emblem again anytime soon. We like it just how it no, is. No, we won't. It's a good one. <laughs> Thanks very much. Good Time for your Hero of the Week, and we must give an imaginary round of applause to 34-year-old Notts County striker John Stead. He maintained his record of scoring a goal in every round of this year's FA Cup with his goal against Swansea. A wonderful achievement from an FA Cup specialist, now 10 years removed from his horrible struggles at Sunderland. However, Sam, I will return to that difficult time to ask you, who's your favourite striker who just couldn't quite cut it in the Premier League? Well, there are so many. I mean, you can look at the people like John Stead, the young ones coming through who had these flashes of talent and the pace and excitement and the crowd loved them, but they just never quite did it, or you get those sort of foreign imports. I remember in the, the mid-noughties Premier League era, I think Man City had about seven foreign imports who came in and had no chance. There was sort of Giorgio Samaras, Brazilian Joe, Rolando Bianchi, all these strikers who turned up and did precisely nothing. Um, but the one that really springs to mind is Federico Makeda at Man United. Obviously scored that great goal against Villa and then fell off a cliff. Uh, I also remember being very excited about Luke Moore at Aston Villa about 10 years ago. He looked, he looked like quite a good player. I thought, oh, he could make the World Cup squad in a couple of years. Obviously not. Obviously, that was very, very, very wrong. But um, the answer, I've given a very roundabout answer here, but the uh, the one I'll settle on is uh, James Vaughan, who is the still, I believe, uh, the youngest goal scorer in Premier League history at just 16 years and 270 days. Scored for Everton against Crystal Palace and has subsequently uh, embarked on a journeyman career that has taken him all over the place. And he's currently, as of this year at Wigan um, he's still only 29 years old James Vaughan so maybe there's hope yet he could. he could still make it but I, I think it's probably unlikely he could yet do it that's it you have finished Total Football for this week get in touch with me on Twitter at Tom with an H Gibbs if you want to help shape our next episode with you as ever in time for your Monday morning commute 
Make sure to subscribe to Total Football via whichever method is most expedient and leave us a pleasant review on iTunes if you're enjoying what's happening in your ears now. Our theme tune is by Polvo. Go to mergerecords.com to buy their back catalogue. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist fund managers. If you're enjoying being part of the Telegraph Sport podcasting family, then do make sure to download and listen to Brian Moore's Full Contact. It's the most opinionated rugby podcast as every week Brian and a host of big names from the world of oval balls analyse the biggest and most controversial moments from the weekend's rugby. Your Tuesday commutes will never be the same again if you like rugby.